great advice from people who know what they're talking about. This is the Spotlight Series on the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Getting the word out about a new album, a single, or a video is a crucial part of helping artists create and maintain lasting careers. On today's show, we're shining a spotlight on Felice Ecker of Girly Action Media and Marketing about what she's learned in the last 20 plus years about publicity and marketing. We'll also talk to her longtime client, John Flansberg of the band They Might Be Giants about being in a band for 33 years, how things have changed over time, and the importance of having fun. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lick the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind your own business. Today I'm talking to Felice Ecker. She is the owner of Girly Action Media and Marketing. Felice, welcome to The Future of What? Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Me too. I'm glad to have you. So today what I want to know from you is how did you get into the music business? Well, I graduated from Syracuse in 86 Mm -hmm. and I had studied to be a film editor. So when I moved to New York, I started PAing and getting like super lo-fi editing assistant gigs. But when you are at the bottom of the food chain, the editing world, you must work at really creepy editing houses like horrible hours. Oh my God. But then my best friend and I decided, let's get an internship at a record company. And at the time, we were obsessed with this little tiny French label called Celluloid. And they had the Golden Palominos, and we loved the Golden Palominos. So we got an internship there, and I ended up having the best time ever interning there. And it was one of those crazy companies where everybody was very eccentric. And it turned out that pretty much all the people that I interned with at that time, I ended up working with over the years. Adam Kaplan was my boss at Mute. And I worked with him when I was at WIA at Virgin. And Jordi Gillespie is a big radio person. And Michelle Cucci ended up moving on to being, you know, like head of PR at a bunch of major labels. And it was just, it was a crazy place. But I never got hired there. My first job where I got paid was at Tommy Boy. And it was at the time when Tommy Boy was way uptown and Monica Lynch was Tom Silverman's assistant and Steve Knutson, who went on to do A&R there, worked in the mailroom. And it was when Tommy Boy ran the New Music Seminar. So I worked at the New Music Seminar with Marcy Weber, who went on to manage Moby and this awesome guy, David Russell, and I don't know what he's up to, and Jody Carilla, who's in Portland teaching yoga. and But they all <laughs> went on to do like super cool things, and they were all big parts of kind of ushering me forward. And then I finally got like a real gig where I had health insurance, and I worked for WIA. Uh-huh. And we as Warner Electric Atlantic. And my very first job there was to be the sales manager's assistant. And it was during the time of buying billboard numbers. It was pre-sound scan. So I was the one who was in charge of ordering cleans to send to Tower Records and whoever else, Sam Goody, to get good chart numbers. And it was crazy. It was me and a whole crew of like older Italian and Jewish guys from Long Island. And (laughs) 
Then I finally got like my first creative job there, which was to be an alternative marketing rep. And it was right at a time where they realized that developing acts could potentially be cash cows in a different way. So our first thing we worked on was the second Faith No More album. Mm. And it was a big deal. It was at a time, you know, it was the late 80s. It was at a time where there was still a lot of money in the music industry. People were really excited all of a sudden it was you know kind of led up to you know the breaking of nirvana and there was all it was when warner electro atlantic also had interscope and geffen and virgin Mm -hmm. so it was you know they really championed lenny kravitz at the time and i'm trying to remember who else we worked with but it was crazy and Mm -hmm. fun but also still very old school and i was really one of the only women that wasn't a secretary at the time. And I started as a secretary and my boss, Andy Uterano, was awesome. Then Adam Kaplan, who I knew from Celluloid, was the marketing director at Virgin. And he went to Mute and he hired me at Mute. And that was kind of the trajectory for me to ultimately start Girly Action, which Mm -hmm. was I went to Mute, I started off in marketing, then I became, then I did commercial radio, then I did video promotion, and then I really wanted to do A&R because every stupid person in the music industry thinks that they should do A&R and sign (laughs) bands. But I worked at Mute and Daniel Miller was very particular about the artists that were on his label. And he said, you can do A&R in the sense that you can work with the albums and the artists that are making music in the U.S. So I got to work really closely with Diamanda Galas and Simon Bonney from Crime in the City Solution. And he said, but the, the catch is you have to become... You have to run publicity. Hmm. And at the time, I was like, Ugh, I don't want to be a publicist because I always thought they were like Bobby Fleckman and not cool people. <laughs> from, if you know Bobby yes. Fleckman from Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. But I decided to do it. And I realized I was a natural because it was just like sales. And I actually really loved working at WIA. And I really loved the other part of my job at WIA before I did the marketing was I was the last person at WIA to sell vinyl, and I was the last person at WIA to sell directly to mom and pops. Hmm. So, and I loved it. Like, I'm still friendly with a lot of people that I knew from mom and pop stores, you know, all over like the tri-state area. Mm -hmm. So I loved it, and I got to do PR for Diamanda Galas and Einstutz and Neubauten and Throbbing Gristle and Can and Crime in the City Solution, like my favorite bands of my life, Nick Cave. Mm. And I was like just the happiest ever. But then the president of the company left and a new president came in and he cleaned house. I was devastated because I was very emotionally attached to my job and my company. But it was what made me start Girly Action. So... Mm -hmm. Francis Pennington, who was at EMI at the time, said, you should really consider going indie. And I was offered a job at another major label to do be a publicist there. And she said, don't do it. There's only like, there's barely any companies doing PR for developing acts. And at the time, it was Sue Zimmerman, who at the time had Formula, and Steve Martin. And she said, if you start, I'm going to help you get clients. And... I took some time to think about it. I ended up being the director for the CMJ Music Marathon, which was a huge learning experience, and (laughs) it was insane. But then I started Girly Action in November of 93, 
and Vicky Starr, my business partner, joined me in 94. She actually started as my intern because, not because she, you know, she was incredibly qualified to have a full-time gig, but she wanted to get into band management at the time. And I said, okay, but I really need help with my books. And she was great with all of that kind of stuff. So we were a very perfect fit. We complimented each other well, and Mm -hmm. it was good. And... We got our first office in 94, and it really was kind of off to the races. You know, I think my very first band that I ever worked with was this band called Echo Belly. They were from the UK, and I didn't even get paid for it. I got this crazy, like, pre-iPad was called a Scion. Do you remember Scions? They were from like the UK. They were oh, weird. There was all of the, you know, like pre-Blackberry. There were all of these kind of things that were like phone tablets mm-hmm. in the early 90s. They were like, it was crazy. But then, you know, just things took off and we just, you know, it was we stayed just the two of us for a while. And then when we moved into our first office, somehow things just blossomed and we started growing our staff and, you know, we started working in Soho and then moved to Chelsea and now we're, you know, in Midtown and the staff has been as small as me to as large as 25 of us, you know? So so that's kind of a long answer to that question. Well, I was hoping for a long answer. I didn't <laughs> think there was going to be a short answer. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think people becoming entrepreneurs in the music industry is is probably my favorite part. You know, I think I really love it when people take the initiative and see an opportunity mm-hmm. and just say, hey, I can do that. And it sounds like you had some support in doing that, which is important. I had a lot of support. And my parents were very supportive. Oh, that's good. You know, they both, both of my parents, you know, they were a little nervous because they had just sent me to Syracuse University for four years. And, you know, I decided to start working out of my bedroom. I think I remember I got Ray Rogers, who was the music editor at the time for Interview Magazine, did a feature on me. And I sent it home. And for some reason, it was the thing that just my father got it. (laughs) Showed everybody, see, this is what Feliz does. (laughs) And it made a lot of sense to him after that. But, you know, we were really lucky. We started the company at a time where there was... There was, you know, an infrastructure in the music industry that could afford to hire, you know, independent firms to do promotion. And it was a nice time to start because it was a transition also in terms of the way people were perceiving artists that were not stereotypically pop artists. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it it really, and it was also kind of the 90s for us, it was, you know, I love all of the music journalists that are out there today, but it was the time of beautifully written features that were edited well and fact-checked and the time of having a great album review. And not to say that those things are not great now, but they were prioritized by the music industry and the media in a different way. We're now... It's much more of a hustle and it's much more of, you know, getting short, you know, it's much more, I don't want to say, you know, the to the layman, you know, it's about premieres, but it's just really about getting the media to kind of like give your band like the tiniest bit of attention 
even if they put it on a big platform, it's not the same. And maybe it just makes me old that <laughs> I, you know, pine after the days, you know, when Ann Powers would write, you know, 3,500 word feature in the New York Times about somebody or you'd have, I remember we had this like 15,000 word feature on They Might Be Giants in the New Yorker. And, you know, those things, you know, for an artist who really has like a long career trajectory, it's nice for somebody to take their time and talk about it beautifully. I remember John Hodgman did like the first Anthony and the Johnsons feature for the New York Times magazine. Mm -hmm. And it was just Great. I remember Anthony said, you know, he went home and he put the magazine under his pillow and he slept on top of it because <laughs> he wanted to have good dreams from it. You know, he was wow. so proud of it. And I just feel like we're in a place now where artists and the media have a very different type of a relationship. What's more of the media kind of putting the person under the microscope as opposed to the music and the artistry. Mm-hmm. So it's tough to be on my side, because I am always trying to encourage my staff to try to figure out ways to make it more about, you know, not just throwing it out there and letting a million blogs pick it up. You want that, but at the same time, you want to really find people who are passionate about your artists, because your artists, you know, majority of my clients are people who have, though they have a career because they get great syncs or they do a lot of touring, you know, they're not breaking because of commercial radio and they're not breaking because of some big brand supporting them. They're ba- they're breaking really from their own tireless effort of being an artist and putting themselves out there all the time. And some of them really have a you know, a beautiful, simple career and they have families that they support and it all works. But for us, if we get the media that is more of the mainstream media to champion any of our clients, they're really doing it because they just believe in the artist. It's not, they have, they get, there's no gain for them other than the fact that Maybe they're going to have a a beautiful moment. Like, I remember the first time Sia played Letterman, it was before, you know, she exploded. It was on her last album. She did this song, and the music producer was really incredible, and she dressed the whole set in white, and everybody was playing white instruments, and Sia was all in black, but she spray-painted her hands pink and neon blue. And the song she signed to in sign language. And it was just one of those moments where you went, I get it. (laughs) This is why I do what I do. You know, Mm -hmm. like it was beautiful. She just, it was at the very end of her record cycle. And I really feel for her. It was just like a beautiful moment. I mean, now she's a superstar and it's a very different realm. But, you know, I think it was one of those moments where the booker felt like, you know, this is why I do what I do. You know, mm-hmm. this is like a magical moment. And, you know, that was really great to be a part of. For listeners who may not really understand, so most of the time major labels have in-house publicity departments. And a lot of times Not so much do. anymore. Not so much anymore. No, because a lot of labels have really downsized. And right. major labels have very large rosters. And right. a lot of major labels only have 
of kind of an insular staff and they need to hire a lot of times the major labels spend a lot of time managing multiple indies but the budgets are not what they used to be they're much much smaller right but when you started out that's when I, how oh when it i started was, so. out the PR was handled in-house. Right. And so and, you were sort of the, one of this handful of independent right. publicists who came out and and sort of, that was like kind of a new model. So mm-hmm. that's really, you know, you were marketing yourself to indie labels right. largely, people who didn't either want a full-time publicist right. on staff, couldn't afford it or whatever. But then that has changed, right. right, over the last however many years. I mean, now, you know, for us when we started, My thing has always been I've always wanted to have like a broad range of clients from established acts to brand new bands. And if you can manage to always kind of keep that balance, then you can actually work on some brand new up and comer and still give them the amount of attention that you would give one of your larger clients because your larger clients are paying you more and giving you the room to really you know, give these new artists a shot. I think that is also the downfall of a lot of independent PR firms is that they strictly work with new acts, so they have to carry these massive rosters. And it's really hard to make your client shine if you're representing, you know, 20 to 30 artists at a time, you know, per publicist. And, you know, for us, we really try to represent, you know, each PR team really tries to represent a much smaller amount of artists. And it just, it's nice that way. I feel we can really make a difference in somebody's career. And a lot of, you know, now I would say that like anywhere from like 30 to 50% of my roster, depending on the time of the year, are artists that are hiring us directly. And some of these artists are very established acts, like they might be Giants or Rob Zombie or, you know, Danzig. They've all had large, you know, have all been on major labels at one time or another, but have decided to go their own way because of the internet. They've developed a really great relationship with their fan base and they can sell directly to them. And, you know, for us, it's been exciting to be a part of. So, so yeah. Black Table by Milagres. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Felice Ecker of Girly Action. So the landscape, I mean, I'm just interested in how the landscape has changed since you started. So when you started, you had a probably a slight leg up in that you had connections. You'd been in the industry for a right. little bit. You knew some people. 
But then, but like you said, there weren't that many independent publicists when you started out. It was just you and a couple others. Right. But then over the last 20 years or yeah, so, the landscape, the landscape has, has completely changed. changed. I mean, it's changed for multiple reasons. It's changed because the 90s was really about this time of the blossoming of the independent artist in terms of their level of attention that they received from the mainstream media. You know, we worked with Yola Tango or the Magnetic Fields or, you know, all of the artists that we worked with on Co Rock Stars, you know, like Elliot Smith. People, we could book those artists on Saturday Night Live and we could book them, you know, we could get them a feature in Entertainment Weekly and it didn't really make sense, but it was possible. And that was really what people were hiring us for. And all of a sudden, all of these independent labels and major labels who had smaller acts were like, yeah, let's do that. We can hire an indie and they're going to go in and they're going to get us all of these really great looks. So at the time in the late 90s, there were just a few of us. But as the landscape changed and the digital world really became the world of the media and the world of, you know, that's how everybody releases their records now. The amount of releases that are out there has, you know, I mean, I remember Bob Boylan was said at a panel at South by Southwest two years ago that he gets upwards of 500 queries a day for new releases. There's thousands of new records coming out. So there's thousands of people that are making records in their bedrooms some of them are incredible, but some of them are not. And so within, and then there's a lot of new independent labels and they can choose to put records out and only do it digitally. The investment has changed for everybody. When we used to service music in the beginning of Girly Action, we wrote a press release, we brought it to the copy shop, we Xeroxed it, then we got, you know, 500 to 1,500 copies of it with the same amount of black and white 8 by 10 inch photos mm -hmm. with CDs or tape cassettes or vinyl. And that in itself was a huge expense. So none of those expenses exist anymore. Right. So now to also hire an indie, it's a lot easier. But you know, the paradigm keeps shifting. It's It literally shifts every, like, three to five years in terms of our relationship with labels and what we're doing for them and our relationships. The thing that's most, that's really the biggest change is that now we are hired directly by so many artists where in the past you got hired by a record label that had a publicist, that had a PR budget. So when they hired you, that budget wasn't contingent on whether or not the record was a success right. or whether or not the artist was a success. It was, it was a budget that was created before the record came out and that money existed. So, you know, we were also in a place where we knew that when somebody hired us, they were going to pay us. Now we get hired by a lot of very small labels and artists directly and my mantra to everybody is know your budget have that money before you start hiring independent publicists independent radio promoters before you start making expensive music videos you know 
know what your budget is. Because if you only have $500 a month to hire an indie, you can find a great publicist for $500 a month. But don't hire somebody for more than that if you don't have it because it's going to rip your heart out. Right. And, you know, so it's just where our role now in the past used to be funneled through a publicist that would go through, get funneled through a product manager at a label. Now we go directly a lot of times to the artist and the manager, and we end up becoming kind of like co-manager consultant. Like the amount of time I spend just coaching people in the music industry or how to get a booking agent or how to, you know, find yourself a publisher or, you know, how much money to spend on making a music video and how much, you know, like it's just, it's unbelievable. There's just, the infrastructure just doesn't exist like it used to, which goes back to our conversation earlier, which is people need record labels. (laughs) Right, it, right. There's there, so, well, and and that's one of the reasons I started this radio show right. is because I I am getting so tired of answering all those questions. I mean, now I think I should ha- call you and have you be my co-host or something, <laughs> so I'm not the only one who has to answer these questions. It's true. It's it's they're just constant, and it's yeah. for exactly that reason. People just don't know how the business part of this works, and there are people out here who do know, and so people right. like you and me are becoming very, you know, people really want to know. Right, people really want to know, questions. and it's. And the tough part is, is that it changes every couple of years. Right. So I could give somebody advice or, you know, somebody could make a lot of choices five years ago in terms of how they want to promote and market themselves or when they even want to put their album out. And it totally changes the industry. Like, I think Girly Action on the whole has had the ability to be incredibly flexible. What a publicist is today and what a publicist was in 1993 are vastly different. And now we really are doing a lot of things that are more kind of marketing driven. In fact, everything that is OPR at the moment in the digital space in the beginning was considered to be digital marketing at a record label because publicists, old school publicists, they only dealt with print and television. That was their space. They didn't touch anything that was on a computer. Not that they didn't use computers, but they were not dealing in the digital space because also people couldn't really quantify what the digital space was in the beginning. So, you know, it's always changing. And my staff is amazing and young and really willing to kind of reinvent their gig whenever it needs to you know they'll figure out like now it's all about the playlist and eventually that's going to be somebody's job like radio promotion like there's going to be the guys who deal with the playlists and that's what you hire them for but there's really not that many people out there that do it so we do it in PR and we do it in our digital marketing division so we want to fill the gap because needs to be filled Mm -hmm. but It's really not publicity, you know, it's really programming and dealing with programmers. Right. (laughs) It's, you know, so the fact that my staff is open, I remember one of my publicists, Aleish Martinez, who's awesome human being. Awesome guy. He worked with me for, I don't know how long, for like almost 12 years. And he was one of those guys who kind of worked with me through the whole transition from 
old school PR all the way into kind of the whole new digital world. And I remember for him, it was even like it was such a, a struggle for him. It was like this emotional struggle where he was just like, I just I don't want to talk about my artists in this way. Like I want to talk about them in the way that respects their artistry, that respects what they're creating. And now I have to talk to people about content. Mm, and it, yeah. And then he's just like, it breaks my heart. Like I don't want to talk about Anthony and the Johnsons or Tori Amos. I don't want to talk about their assets and their content. Right. You know, and it's just such a different way of right doing your job and it's such an i feel like that's a, the most interesting thing about this time right now because it's like we're living in short attention span theater you know there's so much content out there and people can get barraged by so much right. information that they're almost i was interviewing um, rafael cohen from chick 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 mm-hmm. and he was saying you know you put your album out on release date and it's like a few weeks later everyone's like what else you got for us right and it's like, wait a minute, that that album took a year and a half of my life to make. It's right. a serious artistic statement. And now it's like, what well, what else you guys got? You know? I mean, and, and it's so that's the part that's so bizarre for yeah. me for me is is where we don't have time anymore. It's like we don't seem to have time anymore. People want things in small bites rather than well, that's the only way we can do it. You know, like for us, we make sure that we have new tracks that we can set up for album streams. We make sure we have plenty of music videos and remixes and covers. And we really encourage the artists to have like an arsenal of these things. So when we start the campaign, we can have one of these, you know, short attention span theater moments every three weeks. Mm -hmm. But then that's our moment to reel the media back and say, let's talk about the big picture. Let's talk about the artist. Let's talk about the album. And, you know, but the the new world of the premiere and the media exclusive to a certain degree gives us an opportunity to bang on everybody's door a little quicker than we used to. Because in the past, we had lead times that were three to five months, and you do your physical mailing, and you had to wait for people to get it, and you had this like four to six week window where the media would make a decision, and either they'd get on board or they wouldn't. And then you had to wait three months for the record to come out in order to say, look what you missed. Look at all this cool stuff that's happening. Look at this artist. You should have been on board three months ago. And then the media goes, all right, well, maybe we'll get on board now. But you have to be able to tell me what's happening in three months from now. Because if we're going to cover them, something relevant has to be happening in three months, not just now. Right. So when you're a brand new act... It's really hard to press somebody in the media world that you're relevant enough to pay attention to and to actually give physical paper space to. Right. Where now, you know, the internet is limitless. So <sighs> it's exhausting for everybody. But with that said, you know, my company is 22 years old and we're not going anywhere. And... I just feel it's one of those things where if you can like take the time to look at things and figure out where the need is, you can make your job work. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, you have to, if you want to have a business and a company, you want to be able to pay your staff and pay their health insurance and have a nice environment to work in and give them nice computers to use that function and 
It's crazy. <laughs> so somebody has to make money somewhere in order for the machine to work. Well, exactly. So. Yeah. I like what you said about it's nice to remember that 20 years ago there was a different setup because there was money in the music business. Right. And now it's like we're all scrambling for income from new and different sources, right? It's right, that probably sources that gave you money a year ago, but now that well is totally run dry. It's right. Now you have to figure out, what. okay, so what's the new thing? Right. I used to know how to connect the dots, but some of the dots have disappeared in the middle. So right. you know, how do I get where I need to go in order to like survive? Right. And the RIAA came out with numbers yesterday saying that streaming is 34.4% of revenue for the music industry right now. And that's fascinating because, I mean, I don't know about you, but as a label, I'm terrified of streaming for the simple reason that it could be gone tomorrow. Right. It could it, be gone it, it, in an it, right. IPO. Right. All it would have to do is somebody would just have to buy that company right. and decide we're not doing this anymore. Right. And that's 34.4% right. of our income gone. Right. So, you know, that is one plus of being independent on in any business is that we're small, we're nimble, we can, mm-hmm. we can move quickly, hopefully, and stay with the times. But, oh, my God, that's a terrifying concept that, you know, we're relying on this, you know, at least physical was something that you could hold and there were stores and, you know, in order for the whole thing to disappear, it would take a while. (laughs) We're so old. (laughs) Although vinyl is, you know, physical is making a comeback. Physical is making a comeback. It's still 33% of the industry. I know. My God. When I was pregnant, my sister convinced me to sell all of my vinyl. (gasps) All of it. What? Yes, I gave it to Bill Ryan from Pure Platters, and he sold it all on eBay, like right when eBay was brand new. It's the word I've never. I'm not a person who regrets, but I've ever since then I have been recreating my vinyl collection. Your library, oh man! And it's nice. My 13 year old son like appreciates it, gets the sound. Mm -hmm. You know, like it would really be nice if there was a more straightforward way for people who create in general to be able to make money from what they're creating. And if their stuff is reliant on a digital medium, unfortunately, they've lost a lot of control. So mm-hmm. it's, it's true. You know, I mean, we have people, I mean, we have clients that majority of our clients are in the music industry, but we, you know, we represent films and books and directors and, you know, their life now is just, it's such a different animal. Mm-hmm. And for us, it's just, you know, again, my staff, myself, my partners, we have to figure out, like, we have to really stay on top of stuff. And I don't, I'm not always in the mood, you know? It's <laughs> like, I, I have to I stay know. on top of new music. I don't want to have to stay on top of, like, absolutely everything. <laughs> so, but thank God I have lots of energetic, young, wonderful people who work for me who yeah. stay on top of everything. Which is awesome. So what would you just, for advice, for, you know, young people listening to this show who might want to become publicists, do you have any <laughs> any advice for them? Well, probably over the course of the past 22 years, I would say that 80% of my staff has started as interns. I recommend getting an internship. I recommend getting an internship and not staying for a long time. I recommend getting an internship for three months somewhere. If they don't hire you, get an internship somewhere else and try to just get to know people before you expect a job in the music industry. Because the music industry is, there's no linear way to get hired. You know, it's really about 
You know, a lot of people think that, oh, I'm going to go be an intern and I'm going to let them know how cool I am or how much I know about music. It's the same concept as anything. You want to let people know that you're capable and organized and that you take direction well. Because the first gig you're going to ever get anywhere is to be entry level. And entry level can mean a lot of things at a lot of places. But, you know, I think it's very hard to be an entrepreneur. It's very exciting and it's a lot easier now to be an entrepreneur than it was, you know, 25 years ago. But I think there's a lot of people out there who have a lot of experience to offer. And I recommend getting an internship with one of those people. Mm-hmm. and learning. And then if you feel that entrepreneurial spirit, you go out and you start your own thing. I'm out, like over the past 22 years, I've had a ton of people leave and start their own business. Some of them have become, you know, superstars, you know, Brian Bumbery, who I love, but, you know, or I've gone off to like, you know, work at major labels and, you know, work with superstars and that's great. But a lot of people started their own business and realized I'm a really creative person. I'm a really good publicist, but I'm not a good business person. Mm -hmm. And I am one of those people. I'm not a good business person. But luckily, I had Vicky, who was a good business person, and understood that just because you send somebody an invoice doesn't mean that they're going to pay you. (laughs) And um, You can't just send it and forget it. (laughs) No. And so, you know, we have a whole collections infrastructure. You know, getting paid is the hardest thing ever in terms of starting your own business. You could do the greatest job ever and still not get paid, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, luckily, we've only sued two people in the past 22 years. And it wasn't even for an enormous amount of money. It was just because the people really jerked us around. Mm -hmm. And it was just a frustrating experience. But I think the music industry... You only need, you, if you want to be in the music industry, you get into the music industry because you are passionate about music, not because you want to make a lot of money, because it's not even the 1% in the music industry. It's less than the 1% who make money in the music industry. That's right. But if you just live and breathe it, then that's great mm-hmm. and go for it. But, you know, it's, it's not a very, you know, flush world to be a part of. Certainly not these days. <laughs> Definitely not these days. But, you know, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So what's your favorite part of your job? You know, my favorite part of my job has become nurturing my staff. Like I love, for me, finding a great employee is like finding a great artist. Mm -hmm. You know, like I love watching my staff grow. I love, I mean, I've had people who have worked for me. And if you had said when they were an intern or when they just started, they're going to like be an incredible publicist, I would have said, I'll bet you a thousand bucks that I will never hire this person to be a publicist. And then (laughs) they proved me wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember Heidi Ann Noel, who's now, you know, Katy Perry's publicist. When she started working for me in college, she couldn't even look you in the eye. (laughs) If you talked to her, she just turned bright red (sighs) and she was so shy. And then she just, you know, became a powerhouse because she really wanted it. So. I love that. So, yeah. And I mean, and I really love working with artists that surprise me, you know? And I love working with artists that are 
uh, that work just as hard as I do. Mm. You know, that for me has become a really big part. You know, like I can be a huge fan of somebody and hate working with them. Mm -hmm. But then I could be working with somebody that I really appreciate and I think they're doing something really interesting and that's changing culture. And they're just super prolific and creative and just great. And then for me, like, they can become my favorite clients. <laughs> so, you know, it's nice to, I mean, and we have a lot of clients that we've worked with for a long time. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we have clients, My Morning Jacket, Preservation Hall. I mean, we've worked with both of those bands for over a decade. They might be giants. I think we've been working with since 1997. You know, wow. it's just Santi Gold since 2003. And, you know, it's, that's also really another I love feeling like we're a part of the family, you know, because mm -hmm. part of the team, part of the team. Mm -hmm. Great. So that's good. Cool. Well, Felice Ecker, thank you so much for joining us on the future of what today. Thanks, Portia. by hands. You're listening to the future of what? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. I'm talking to John Flansberg of the band They Might Be Giants. John, welcome to the future of what? It is great to be here on the future. It's great to be in the future. <laughs> Even if we don't know what that future is about, right? Yeah. Exactly. And that's yeah. kind of what we're talking about. So I wanted to start off with you by just asking for your perspective, you know, a little bit of history from a person who has been in the same band since he was 22 years old, you know, a little perspective on this industry. What the heck is going on? Well, you can't tell because this is for the radio that, that I'm 23. <laughs> so I'm, I'm actually 55 years old. So I've been in the, this band for 33 years, which is a, you know, a pretty strange period of time. But, you know, I have, I have such racing thoughts about the ways of the music business and just where the music industry is. I, don't, I spent so much time learning what the common wisdom was back when there was common wisdom and there were like cultural gatekeepers. And then once we were established, everything, you know, all these formats have come and gone and, and all this revenue has come and gone and, and uh, the culture has really moved in a very different direction and has very different ideas about what they what they need out of music. It's just, it's always, it's just been a continuous, highly dynamic business to be in. And, it's, and a lot of it's really fun and a lot of it's really interesting. A lot of it is it kind of makes it a little sad. You know, it's, it's, it's just, I have every kind of emotion about the music thing. From my personal perspective, that was a really interesting thing to observe regarding our entrance into the culture was that it was really perceived one way when we started and it has really shifted as a historical artifact. And, and when I, I'm talking about the Dial Song project that we did starting in the very early mid-80s. It was basically when phone machines were just invented. They were actually a, a very trendy thing in New York City. Like you had actors and itinerant musicians 
having phone machines in their apartments as, instead of having an answering service, which is what people used before them. And so it was just a handy thing to have around. But like you're back in 1983, your mom did not have a phone machine. <laughs> and so we, I, I got this idea. I had this idea when I first heard about it because I grew up in Boston where they had a thing called Dial a Prayer. Um, oh, right. Uh, for, year, for years in the 70s, there was, it was the Catholic Archdiocese had set up the thing for people who were like housebound. So they could like not be denied their their religious service. So having grown up with that, in my mind when I heard about these home recorders, immediately kind of went to that, and we did this project, and it was this at the same time we were playing in a lot of performance art clubs in in the East Village, and it's very normal kind of just a sort of creative project, just creative outlet, and it was a, a bit of a challenge because we had to write a lot of songs to kind of feed it. But it was something that we promoted around the East Village and helped promote our shows. And in, and for a lot of people, it was actually the dial song machine that was the subject. Like we like our, us being a live band was just kind of an ancillary part of the dial song experience. Mm-hmm. And my big takeaway from having the dial song service was that the major label people that we, the few major label people that we encountered was they didn't really like it. And the reason they didn't like it is they don't they wanted to basically get a band in sort of almost a, a like a fetal state and then do all the handling, all the sort of image making and sound massaging in their development process. And oh, if you had no. any kind of reputation before you got on a label, they felt it was kind of destructive. And and what's now and now when when the story is told in the history of our of our band, it's basically like they might be giants. We're trying to get a record deal, so they did this thing called Dial a Song. Hmm. But in fact, it was it was really the the it had the exact opposite effect. Like it was a, a complete turnoff to people in the music business, serious people, because it just was sort of like a they saw it as small timey. They saw it as just too weird. Yeah, they just didn't need it. And that's so hilarious now, because of course today in 2016, a record label like mine. I, you know, I'd prefer it if you showed up at my door having already done everything yourself. You know, you recorded the own, re- own record. No, it'd be great if you had a dial-a-song thing. You have your own podcast. You're out on the road. You know, I mean, labels are really unwilling nowadays to sign acts that haven't really proven that they're willing to work hard on their own behalf. You know, it's it's no longer that that model of like we're going to develop you. But you guys are also really interesting because you've now you've now done it all. You you were on an indie. You were on a major. You were on some more indies, and now you have your own label. So it's been, you've just seen every facet of, of what can happen for a band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's all, you know, it's, it's all one business in a way. You know, it's all just about trying to figure out how to start, sort of hold on to the thing you're doing and fit into the thing they're doing. You know, it's like, it, it, you know, it's, just, you just, it's, it's a, sort of about cooperation, I think, is really the, is really the key. Cooperation is the key. Yeah. And I mean, we've been talking a lot about that, especially with regard to marketing and publicity, because I think the most successful campaigns are often the campaigns where the artist is really on board with whatever the marketers are, you know, envisioning. And, you know, when it is a collaborative effort, I think that that works the best. It's noon in the Love her to me Slay in the dark Meet the birds and the 
June by Horse Feathers. You're listening to the future of what? We're talking to John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. So let's talk about Felice Ecker. You, how did you end up getting hooked up with her? Was it a, a record label that you were on that first hired her to work for you guys? We were kind of in free fall, and it was a very strange free fall. We had, it was the dot-com boom, and right before the dot-com bust. So we took this kind of crazy, easy, crazy deal with eMusic. And then in short order, did a deal with Restless Records, which was this Hollywood record company that did a lot of hair metal, like uh, LA, really Hollywood hair metal type stuff. I think Restless was related to Hollywood records. And they were, they were, they had distributed our first two indie releases through Bar None. And they're really nice people, and they totally got us. And they sold, we already sold a ton of records with them. So it, when they got their big distribution deal and kind of expanded right at that moment, it seemed like a very natural fit. And then 9-11 happened, and, they, and Restless was instantly out of business. Wow. Like they were out of business three days later. That was crazy. Which was very, very strange. because And, and our record had literally come out on 9-11. So it was just one of those things where... There was nothing, you know, and then, and then a few months later, you know, a year later, music was pretty much out of business or refinance or whatever. And so we were just trying to make our way through what was a very sort of, you know, this upside down world. And we started doing com- television work and commercial work because mm-hmm. it was something that was readily available, even though it wasn't particularly, it wasn't super fun. And we were just kind of rolling with it. <laughs> and then all the situations we were in after that, we needed a publicist because we were working, we didn't have a record company with a publicist. So right. we, we got with Girly Action. And there was, so, you know, there's such a jolly bunch of people, you know, they just had a really happy spirit about it. And it was actually really nice. It really reminded me very much of being right back at one of the things I really enjoyed about being at Bar None was that there was this kind of, there's a very nice kind of us against the world quality about it. Like all any victories were like celebrated and any defeats were totally ignored. <laughs> it was just fun, you know, it's just, it's, and it's all, it's, it's been fun. I mean, the truth is that I, you know, I, I've worked with very few people in my life. I mean, when, when people say you've had such a long career, I think one of the reasons it doesn't seem that long is we, I've, I've had the same musical partner for all these 30 years we've had the same manager for 28 of those years. We've had the same booking agent for 27. <laughs> and now, you know, we've been with police. I mean, we've, had, we've been with police for like 16 years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I guess, I mean, I mean, the, the obvious takeaway from that is when you find good people stick with them. I mean, obviously, but that's, you know, I'm sure they're sick of me, <laughs> but that's something, <laughs> you know, we've talked about that on this show with management. We had a couple of people come on here and talking about, you know, what to do with managers or how, what a band's attitude towards management should be. What I liked that someone said was that, you know, you should feel about your manager the same way you feel about your drummer. Like, we're in this together. You know, this is, we have the same vision. We're moving for the same, you know, to the same goals. And if you're if you're not moving to the same goals, that's when you switch it up. Right. But, you know, as long as you're still aligned. But bringing up the drummer is such an interesting, specific thing to say. Because I know, since so people, people dump their drummers all the time. <laughs> 
I feel like people see the drummer as the other. Right. You know, the, the odd person out. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, maybe that's not the best. I, I mean, your guitar player. Well, right, right. I mean, if you see him as a collaborator, if you see him as something that you're working with rather than kind of negotiating with, right. That's that you, you really do have to have like confidence that they have your interests at heart. But I think the, you know, one thing I've noticed, and this isn't, this isn't, it took me a long time to even recognize this and then even longer to sort of process it for what it really is. Immediately at once you're outside of like the inner sanctum of being in a band you're in a world where there's all sorts of trading going on. You know, your booking agent is dealing with a promoter who's like, you know, you give me this, I need this and this. Is that cool? That's cool. You know, all radio festival things are like horse trading. You know, it's just like people will be trading on your name always. Even, it doesn't matter who you are. You know, you can be the Beatles, the guy who's, you know, got the Rolling Stones thing is going to be, you know what I mean? And yeah. I think performers just really faith at the idea of, they just see that as a very weird kind of compromise and they don't want, or, or, you know, or just a dirty business. Right. And what's weird is it's, it's not only not really a dirty business, it actually is what the business is. Right. That's actually the whole way it works. It's not just some part of how it works. You know, if you're, if you're booking Bonnaroo, you know, you're juggling the phone between, you know, the band that you really want to have on it and the guy who controls that band's other stupid band. Right. Or the management team. You know, it's like you want to work with a manager who manages Katy Perry because they're going to leverage that in your favor somehow. You know, it's like, well, if you want Katy Perry, you have to, you know, book my little band that no one's ever heard of. Right. And, and you know, I've for us, we... Very early on, we decided that we wanted to take like basically the lowest road possible. We we never <laughs> we only opened for a few bands very early on, and most of those experiences were pretty bad in one way or another. And I think we just recognized that they might be giants as a thing was a very sort of take it or leave it kind of act. And so to hear about this sort of horse trading stuff, it, it really bugged me out at, at first. But in the fullness of time, I've, I've come to realize like, well, well, no, no kidding i mean it's just like that's why wouldn't it be that way exactly and this is the business and that's what we're talking about on this radio show is this is the business of music like this is what we're engaged in and and people who say they want to be in bands and they want to do this as a, for a living you know you can hold your golden ideals for a certain amount of time and then at some point you have to realize this is actually how things get done and if you're not good with that you can you know go do something else yeah yeah I mean, it's, it's, it's also, you know, the myth, the mythocracy of music is so strange because they really do want their performers to present themselves as, as being uncompromised, even though, you know, you think about just what, just coming up in anything like this, you're already, you know, just playing like showcase gigs, like such, such a total indignity. I mean, there's, no, there's <laughs> when I think about the first 10 years of our touring lives. There was so little dignity involved. <laughs> you know, I mean, on, only in the most abstract way would you think that, you know, we weren't basically willing to kind of do anything. Right. My, my big advice for young bands, for young bands, is just like, enjoy yourself, you know, actually tr try to have a good time. Like really do have a good time. You know, don't overthink it. Don't think like where you're going to be going or what it's all going to, because like this might be the only part that's fun. And yeah. 
you know, it's hard to have fun in life. It's, you know, it's, it's great to be in a band. I, you know, I, if, if, if you're only in a band for a year and it was all really fun, then you're already got more to talk about at the end of the bar than the other guy. <laughs> I think that's excellent advice. And on that note, John Flansberg of They Might Be Giants, thank you so much for coming on The Future of What? Hey, it's totally my pleasure. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Malagres, Hands, Horse Feathers, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on the shows, check out our website at killerrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I